this evening, if you would turn with me once again to 1 Samuel. We're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's been a little while since I've been with you all, so I'm counting on you remembering something of what we had considered previously, but in order to help us, just a quick overview. The Lord has brought Samuel onto the scene. There is a desperate need for a king. Everyone's doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And part of that is Israel's attempt to rule the nations and to go out conquering the conquer by manipulating the power of the Lord. They bring his ark out against the Philistines, some of the arch enemies of God in the Old Testament, and they are, to their shock and dismay, soundly defeated, which would appear at first to be a complete uh, demonstration that Yahweh, the God of, the, of, of Israel, is incapable, and that Dagon, the God of the Philistines, is the God with power. But then when the ark arrives in the land of Philistia, we find Dagon bowing and then breaking before the Lord. We find the Philistines plagued with terrible tumors, perhaps the bubonic plague, and the Philistines crying out, and at last, in a really remarkable sort of miracle, the ark returns. And in a way that's very humble, but in a way that is unmistakable, that it is the Lord who has done these things. Well, now we are this evening in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 through chapter 7, verse 2. Let's pray as we come to the word. Lord our God, we come having sung of your holiness and with something of that acknowledgement in our hearts that not having understood your holiness as we ought, not having beheld you, not having our hearts attuned to the reality of your consuming glory, we are very, very unfit to hear your voice. We acknowledge, O Lord, as Israel did so long ago, and say with them, O Lord, do not speak to us again with the thunders and the terrors of Sinai, or we will die. But do speak to us, we pray. In the voice of our mediator, Jesus. Because when we hear his voice, then the sheep know him and follow him. And our stubborn hearts, with what little grace seems to be at work in them sometimes, would follow you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you, the great king of the nations, you who are over all, would come with that gentle authority, with the word of Christ, to humble us, to speak to us, to teach our hearts in the right way, in the right place, to lament. We are inquiring after you, O Lord. We are saying with your prophet of long ago, would you please speak, O Lord? Your servants are listening. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel 6, beginning in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned before the Lord, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is God's holy and solemn word for us tonight. Well, if you could put yourself there with the man of Beth Shemesh, when they see the ark coming, you can just imagine the joy. It might have been a little bit like the Psalms of Ascent, where it says, when the Lord returned the captivity of Israel... We were glad. We laughed. It was like we were dreaming. There comes the ark. God coming back to his people. Things are good. And it even seems as if we could put over the top of this particular mission. Mission accomplished. We've won. They must have laughed in mockery at the Philistines. (laughs) See, they can't even handle our God. Our God is so great They had to return the ark. See how great we are. And we would perhaps not have had the wisdom, as they did not, to not be quite so fast. Because this is what, in the annals of warfare, is called a Pyrrhic victory. I don't know if that word is familiar to some of you, but a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that is achieved at such a great cost that it amounts to defeat. The Greek king Pyrrhus went to war against the Romans. He had tremendous success, but it cost his army dearly. And Plutarch writes, We are told that Pyrrhus said to one who was congratulating him on his victory, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. There are many such battles that have littered history. The Battle of Bunker Hill is one that you might remember. The Brits go after and finally win the high ground, but lose almost half their fighting forces. So it is here. This is a Pyrrhic victory. Victory for Israel! Well, maybe not. Maybe not really. Certainly victory for the Lord, but not for Israel. And as we consider the whole message of the writings of First and Second Samuel at this particular point, it would seem that the Lord is emphasizing again how very desperately we need a king who can conquer our foolish hearts and rule us in holiness. 
Notice the state of Israel's heart. They are really fools. The ark returns. God is graciously coming to his people again after a great slaughter and victory over his enemies among the Philistines. And his people are just as irreverent as ever. It ought to have been a great celebration, ticker tape parade, and everything else, a wonderful homecoming. And it becomes instead, for Israel, a moment of even greater judgment and terror than what the Philistines experienced. This is not how we expect things to go. A pyrrhic victory indeed. It seems as though maybe the Philistines actually have the last laugh after all. The joke really is on us. The ark comes back and the conditions seem ripe for Israel now to succeed. The Philistines would appear to have been conquered. Surely Israel's getting reports. It's just literally down the road a few miles. The Philistines are not doing so well. And there is Israel congratulating themselves. Serves them right. Of course they're doing poorly. We're the people of the promise. We are the ones who ought to have this ark. God loves us after all. It seems perfect. Israel has had seven months to digest what happened at the Battle of Afek. And Seems like they've surely had enough time to fix themselves up before the Lord. And here the ark comes to Beth Shemesh. What better city to choose? A city that was given, we read in Joshua 21.16, to the Levites. Who better to deal with the ark of God? And we find them recognizing their place, working with the ark, offering sacrifices, etc. It seems perfect until we get to here. And then we discover that things are not quite so well in Israel and maybe even could ask the question, why does God come back with the ark after all? Notice here that Israel, despite so much grace, does not learn from the Lord's first rebuke. Thousands of people died when they brought out the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And the ark was taken. And the Philistines themselves have been greatly stricken. They have heard the report. They see the golden mice. They see the golden tumors that are offered in sacrifice to the Lord and presented on the cart that has brought the ark. They were meant to see and savor the Lord's justice, his holiness, and to humble themselves and offer a sacrifice. They do that, but they don't offer themselves. They felt the heavy hand of the Lord like the Philistines, but it hasn't gone deep enough. They're stricken, all right, but their hearts haven't changed. They are like the fool who is beaten but refuses to learn. Proverbs 17.10 tells us that a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. There are still countries where you can be caned severely. And in the Old Testament, this would have been the case too. Deuteronomy 25, the Lord is working out his own law against his people here. Deuteronomy 25, 1. If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him. This is really what the Lord has been doing with Israel. They're supposed to learn. The beating is supposed to do something. 
maybe it doesn't improve morale, as the silly saying goes, but it is meant to produce holy fruit. And we find that Israel is just still foolish. Again, think of the Proverbs, which are written to sons who are by nature foolish, all of us. Give instruction to a wise man, he'll be still wiser. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. They have not heeded reproof. They have continued in their folly. And we see that in the way in which they treat the holy and victorious God of Israel. It's terribly ironic. Terribly ironic. They've had all this time, seven months, a perfect number, you catch that, seven months to reflect on all the discipline of the Lord, their humiliation at that battle seven months back, but they don't receive the ark with the fear and humility and praise that belongs to a gracious God who comes back to his people. And they immediately accept this symbol of the Lord's rule and kingdom right back into their own hegemony and their religious hierarchy of self-interest and manipulation. They act as if nothing has really happened in the intervening months. Those seven months without worship were just a sort of unfortunate episode, and everything's fine now. We'll just go on as we did before. And so we find them subjecting God's name and God's ordinances to the irreverence that they showed before when they took the ark out of the sanctuary. Now they treat the ark with the same and possibly even worse irreverence. And we have to ask ourselves some questions here. Back in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, we find an astonishing statement. Suddenly the word of the Lord is speaking again. There's a light in Israel. The prophet of God has come on the scene. There is a way to inquire of God. And does Israel ever do that? We don't read about it. They even go to Shiloh. We read in chapter 4, wondering how it is that God could defeat them like this. And instead of talking to God, inquiring of God, they pick up the ark, thinking perhaps they are manipulating God and taking him right out onto the battlefield, as it were. Well, they do it again. Deja vu all over again. Do they inquire? No. Do they bow low? Well, not really. They embrace him like that long-lost power tool that was stuck in the neighbor's garage for the longest time, but finally return, and he is still just that to them, a tool. Or rather, we could say in the parlance of our day, they are the tools, really, blindly going along, with the old order and pattern of the world, unconcerned, thinking they know how to handle God, they've got him under control, they have learned nothing from the Philistines. Who is this God who defeated Israel and then the Philistines again and now kills 70 men, a consuming fire, and he will not abide this terrible irreverence. And so we find him in judgment, furious against his people. 70 men die. The hand of the Lord, we have read previously, was heavy on the Philistines. But here the Lord strikes his own people. The Philistines have the wisdom to recognize in chapter 6 
this is what the Lord did to Egypt. Now he's done it to us, and Israel doesn't have the wisdom when the ark comes back to say, woe betide us, that we should sin as they have. And we read that it is a great blow. And it isn't said of of the Philistines that they experience a great blow. It is a great blow because 70 men die at once. The Philistines were dying slowly, perhaps, some of them, some of them more quickly, tumors, but here, instantly, 70 men dead. This happens, by the way, again and again throughout Israel's wandering in the wilderness. They have this wandering in their hearts. You can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the Israelites, or to put it another way, you can take a Christian out of the world, but can you take the world out of a Christian? It's unbelievable, isn't it? Just unbelievable. Or is it? We just prayed for parents a little while ago. Think of all the times when you've had to tell your kids, go sit down and time out, and then we're going to talk. And then you go and talk finally, and there's no problem here. Everything's fine. Unfortunately, spiritual obliviousness doesn't just somehow vanish as we get older. In fact, it might even get harder and more cemented in our souls and take over with greater power. It isn't age that makes for wisdom. It is the knowledge of God that makes for wisdom. Well, the Lord is patient with the Philistines. They dealt with the God of Israel as best they knew how. They inquired of their... Religious consultants got the best advice that they could, and the Lord has relented. But Israel, who actually knows what they're to do, and Psalm 147 says, he hasn't dealt this way with any other nation. They didn't know his rules. Israel knows his rules. They know how they're supposed to honor the Lord, and they don't do it. One commentator puts it this way. Like all great humor, this cuts both ways. Israel laughs at their folly the folly of the Philistines, in imagining that these processes, that is, the golden mice and tumors, would be acceptable. Yet it was these religious professionals of another deity who understood what Yahweh was doing. Israel's corrupt priesthood is ridiculed in the mirror of the folly of the Philistine priests and diviners. Did you catch that? Who's the wise one here? It's not Israel. In fact, if you and I were taking a poll, who would you rather save if you were God? It probably wouldn't be Israel. In fact, maybe really the joke is on us as the church that we think other people are the really bad ones. Think of what Jesus says in Luke 16, 8. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Could it be that instead of our ready criticism that we offer against the false religionists and the pan-paganism of our day, maybe we are meant, looking on them, to pause and wonder, are they in their own way, not as they should be, but are they in their own way actually wiser than we are? We look at the catastrophes that come upon the church, and we should learn from those things to deal wisely, 
and humbly with our holy God to be amazed at such grace that would come to us. So where does this come from in Israel? What is at the root of this folly that can be beaten and beaten and beaten again and never change? Well, I would suggest that many times we think that our folly is a function of our environment. If I just had more time to think things over, maybe sulk it out, get it out of my system, then I'd repent. If only other people just treated me with the kind of respect and understanding I deserve, I could repent. If I could just get my life back on track, then, I, then I'd really, really repent. But Israel's folly and our folly is not a function of environment, but of an evil nature. Samuel hears the Lord in chapter 3. The lone man in Israel that does. Chapter 4, Israel does not listen. Chapter seven, 6 and 7, they don't listen. They don't hear. They don't understand. They are foolish. It's again, as the Proverbs say, that you can crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. How foolish. We are meant here to listen to the story of the men of Beth Shemesh and learn from their example. And what we learn, perhaps, among other things that we'll see, is that we don't learn. We really don't. Our hearts and our hearing need to be changed by somebody who has more power than we do so that we're servants ready to do the bidding of the master. Israel has stiff necks, and by nature, so do we. We are confronted here with a reality that there must be a transforming work of grace in our lives in the whole of the church, or we can be beaten and beaten and beaten again, and there will never be a change. Even when we think we've heard, even when we think that our hearts are feeling and following after Christ, there must be a transforming grace at work by the transforming person of Christ. And yet I want you to notice as well that Christ will ordinarily come to his people in the environment of his discipline. This is how he will ordinarily often deal with us. Revelation 3:19 says, "Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline." This is what the Lord Jesus does for those he loves, and then he says, "So be zealous and repent." Truth be told, we are often enamored of our desires to improve and do better. And we think pretty highly when we do see some strands of grace in our hearts, and we think that we've improved, and then just a moment later we find out we're still the same stubborn fools. That's really who we are. And so the Lord has to take us to school, the school of his discipline, again and again. The discipline in itself will not cure us. But the Jesus who does the discipline can. And he promises to accomplish that. 
We should never think, of course, that the Lord's discipline is harsh. It may be painful, but it is the sign that we are his children. And think about the discipline that was laid on the back of Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53 that he was wounded for our transgressions. The stripes of our iniquity, the beatings on the back for us, were placed on him. For us stubborn, foolish people who didn't get the lesson the first time or the second or the 25th time, our stripes were laid on him. But even as our stripes are laid on him, he is determined to bring us into the fellowship of that suffering, his own suffering, so that when we are judged by the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, we are disciplined so that we are not condemned along with the world. Jesus opens our eyes in discipline to see what he has borne for us stubborn fools. Isn't it really true that a lot of our praying happens when we're down in the valley? When things are really tough? Repentance to Christ usually grows best in the soil of the Lord's discipline. It's there that he refocuses us, causes us to see, enables us to hear, and to cry out to him and find him to be the source of satisfaction and holiness. So what is Israel to do? Well, they actually begin to do it here, to lament and inquire after the Lord. We're never told before this that that Israel calls out to the Lord or goes to Samuel or does anything with a priest for seven whole months. And then we find suddenly in the moment when 70 men of Beth Shemesh die, that the house of Israel begins to lament after the Lord. It's a long time, 20 years, but it is a good thing that they should lament, that we should lament. Do you see, dear friends, Jesus is determined not only to come to us with ordinances, but to come to us by his spirit and to have fellowship with us. He must bring us into his holiness. Well, I want you to consider this for just a moment, that that repentance that we need and faith in Christ is only by the sovereign grace of God in Christ. If we ever thought that you, if you have ever thought, I came to Christ because I was a spiritually sensitive person. I was soft to the things of God. I was raised in a family where I was taught these things. I'm more discerning than others. I, I just have this awareness of spiritual things. Well, look in this mirror. This is what we really are. Who is the church in the Old Covenant? Some of the most stubborn people on the planet. Really? We, we talk about just kind of scratching our heads. How is it that Israel can go through the wilderness and sin against the Lord again and again? Oh, wait. You and I do that too. Our status and our natural inclinations display to the whole world that Jesus doesn't come to save the righteous. He comes to save the worst. That's kind of the point here, isn't it? Israel? Really? Isn't it about time you gave up on them, Lord? No. He has come into the world to save sinners of whom we are the chief. And if we're going to come, it's not going to be because we were smart or spiritual Because we were wise or holy, we are naturally opposed and stubborn and flinty 
and broken and fleshly and unwilling to come until Jesus makes us so. Until he comes with a greater rule, the rule of his own life and death and resurrection for us and rules over us. We need such a king. Actually, here, you could really ask the question, who are the moral people in the picture here? And I suggest it often isn't the, the Israelites or the church. Maybe it really is the Philistines and sometimes the world that actually look pretty moral and good. So whenever somebody says to you, ah, the church, they're full of hypocrites, I think you can ask them right back, well, what do you expect? What do you expect from druggies who are in rehab? from criminals who are just getting out of jail. When you get the worst of the worst in your church, I'm talking about us, when you get the worst of the worst, what do you expect but people to be blind and stubborn and recalcitrant and go back and have to be drawn back and schooled again? I think instead of saying, well, you know, let's give some answers about the hypocrisy in the church, maybe our better answer would be to say something like, just imagine what I was like before. Isn't this what Jesus does? He takes the bad people, the people who don't even know how to deal with him in holiness, even though they have the rules, and he stretches out his hands to such a disobedient and contrary people all day long. The sovereign, if we could dare say, the stubborn grace of Jesus is magnified in a people who are Stubborn, but not as stubborn as he is. Well, there's a small note of hope for Israel. And it is, I grant, small. But they raise two questions, the men of Beth Shemesh, as we come to the conclusion of these verses. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go away from us? Well, there is a sudden recognition. They're getting schooled. Some surprising words are coming out of their mouth. A sudden recognition that there is about God Almighty a transcendence and mystery that he is more than they thought. That they are not able to understand and really reckon with him. He is holy. And why are they saying this? Because they're realizing something astonishing that they are unable in impurity to come to one so pure. To rightly understand the holiness of God means that we recognize that he is above coercion, that it isn't my good behavior or my sound emotions or my high thoughts that are going to bring me near to God. Not a one of those will do. This is really, I, I think, a sort of terrifying warning to the modern church, including us, when we think that worship can be done in any sort of way that we like. Our God is a holy God. He is not to be worshipped just in any old way. And our lives are not to be lived before him in just any old way. He is the God of holiness. No one can stand before him. That's really the answer, isn't it? Who can stand before him? Nobody. And yet, listen to what a later prophet, Malachi, says in chapter 3, verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And the answer we were expecting to hear is what the men of Beth Shemesh are very clearly saying. We can't do it. And he says, 
Who can endure? Who can stand? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What's he coming to do? To refine, to purify, to make presentable those who are in themselves completely unable to stand before the Lord our God. And how does he do that? Immediately after Malachi, we come to the Gospels. And we find the one who is of purer eyes even than to look upon evil, before whom no sin can possibly stand. And he comes and he hangs out, so to speak, with sinners. He touches sinners. He comes and cleanses sinners. He takes their sins upon himself. This is the refiner. This is the purifier. We can't talk about him as if he's harmless, can we? And the men of Beth Shemesh get this, but not in the way they're supposed to, because the next question is, where can we send this ark away? The Philistines ask this question. So the ark goes from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, finally it comes to Beth Shemesh. But what do you do when he's back home? You can't say, get out of your own house. There's no escape. That's the point. God has bound himself to his people in covenant. He is not simply going to let them go. He's the omnipresent God of all the earth. There's no getting away from him. Even if you make your bed on the furthest coast or in the very heart of hell, he is there. There is no escape. So to summarize quickly their questions, this may be the first truthful thing that we've heard from Israel in a long time. Who can stand before him? Certainly we can't. Not unless the purifier comes and with his own blood makes us worthy. And isn't this what the nations we read in Revelation are crying out for at the end of the age? Crying out, who is able to stand? Let the mountains come and fall on us and crush us. Let us find a way of escape. There is no escape unless the God of Israel provides it. And this he has done. For our deeply stubborn, foolish, idolatrous hearts, just as he did for Israel in the giving of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what really is going on here. The Philistines wanted to get rid of the ark. So does Israel. Where can we send this ark away? We don't want to do this anymore. They treat the Lord with the same irreverence as the pagan nations, and then they treat him with the same dismissal as the pagan nations. And so they write, perhaps, or send a messenger to Kirith-Jerim, the Philistines have returned the ark, come get it, we don't want it. God has come, and we don't want him. It's a sort of half-hearted repentance. I'll repent, uh, yeah, I'll repent a little bit, just as long as you kind of leave me alone, Lord. It's really depressing. It's one of those deep low moments, I think, in the Old Testament, where God comes to his people and his people, his brothers, do not want him. Does that sound familiar? He comes to his own. And his own don't receive him. And what is the outcome of that? Lament for 20 years. 
Now, here's the hopeful note on which we're going to conclude. All of this is according to God's gracious promise to establish worship not at the tent in Shiloh, which was wiped out by the Philistines apparently, but in a temple which will be a symbol of a more permanent presence and glory of God with his people. This is tonight the conclusion of what many scholars call the Ark narrative that began in chapter 4. But it's really not the story of the Ark, is it? It's really the story of the Lord, who is the king over all things. And this entire section of Samuel leaves us crying out for a king. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. It leads to Eli and his sons. It leads to the ark being taken away. It leads to Israel receiving the ark back and being just as bad as the Philistines, maybe worse. Stubborn, foolish, evil people. We need a king who can rule the heart, who can change the heart, who can renew a people after his own image. That is the story to which this is leading. Here's a magnifying lens over our own nature and character. We need a king who can conquer our hearts and rule us in the joy of his own holiness. And this he has given in a broken and bleeding Savior. When we next come to consider Samuel, we'll be set up for considering how Samuel goes on to judge Israel. Suddenly Samuel actually does what we were expecting him to do all along. He's judging, preparing for a king. We're ready now for Israel to demand a king and get a king, the right king. So even in a situation where it seems like God's people are utterly lost, and really maybe even the Lord himself has lost, we are given the anticipation not of a people who can improve themselves and do better next time, but of a coming king who by an almighty power will actually change the hearts of his people. Isn't that a great relief? Try and try and try again as we do. Our victories are usually pyrrhic, aren't they? We laugh at others, but the joke might be on us. Friends, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is no joke and no pyrrhic victory, but a real reign, a true reign, a mighty reign forever and ever that rules even to the heart. Good news for us who are so stubborn by our nature. Let's pray. Our Father, give us hearts to trust and to look away to Jesus, who has come to rule us. May we not seek to rule ourselves. May we not, O Lord, rely on our own understanding or even in our grief for our past and many failures and sinful nature, think in ourselves that trying better, harder, will solve our problem when it is only Jesus, a better king, who can do that. Give us hearts, O Lord, that are renewed to trust in him, confessing our sin to go with all of our failings and to cling to him who alone can rule us. May we be a people of prayer. May we be a people who do not lean on our own understanding, 
but a people who know our God and through Christ and by your Spirit enter into Christ's victory even over our stubbornness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.